I worked for eight years as a technical writer. One thing I've learned through my experience as a writer, as a person who likes to put things together, and as a preacher, is that good instruction has both good written directions and good illustrations. Have you ever tried to put together IKEA furniture? Because they ship all around the world, their instructions are all pictures. If I can't figure out the pictures, my furniture is going to be all messed up. I've also worked on projects with all written instructions. I was turning an old laptop into a Chromebook for my daughter. All the instructions were written. And everything was going well until I needed to finalize the installation. The instructions said to choose the option to install the new operating system to the hard drive. But there was nowhere on the screen to choose that option. I tried three times before I gave up. Later, on a fourth attempt, I accidentally clicked in the bottom right-hand corner, and this window popped up. There were several things that could be done in that window, one of which was installing the operating system to the hard drive. If I had been given proper instructions about where to click and maybe a picture of the window, I would have gotten it right the first time. I don't think the Bible should be first categorized as an instruction manual. But for the things that God would have me to do, God does provide good instructions and illustrations. After his resurrection, Jesus gave his first disciples and us some clear instructions. Matthew 28, 19-20 Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Then we are provided with the whole book of Acts as illustrations of how the disciples follow Jesus' instructions. We also want to be a disciple-making community, so we're going to look at Paul the Apostle and how he made disciples. This is not an exhaustive list of all the ways disciples are made, but an illustration, something that provides a snapshot, or actually a series of snapshots, of what it's supposed to look like. What we're going to specifically look into today is who Paul picked to disciple. Someone might think, well, I can't make disciples like the Apostle Paul. He wrote much of the New Testament. I'm not on his level. Well, actually, we have a lot more in common with Paul than maybe many of other Jesus' disciples. Paul wasn't a disciple of Jesus until after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, just like us. Paul came to faith in Jesus as an adult, like some people. Paul's only job wasn't Christian ministry, like many people. I think Paul is even figuring out some of this discipleship stuff as he goes along, like all of us. But if Paul has heard the Great Commission to go, baptize, and teach, he has to be aware of a few things. First, discipleship must combine information and experience. Go and teach people to observe. People need to be taught, and then they also need to practice to become disciples. And second, he has to go and find new disciples. We're going to be in Acts chapter 15 and 16 to see what kind of new disciples Paul found, so that... When you or I are going to make disciples, we have a target. 
sure, I'm supposed to go to all nations, but God has also given me someone in particular to shepherd. We're going to begin with Paul and Timothy in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. Paul went on to Derbe and Lystra, where there was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a believing Jewish woman, but his father was a Greek. The brothers and sisters at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of him. Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, since they all knew that his father was a Greek. To make new disciples, I first look for people that flourish. I chose to start with Timothy and Paul because that relationship is one that one of the most common ones to go to that we use in Christianity to define discipleship. Their relationship is a great illustration of discipleship, but it only shows a snapshot. It shows an important part of discipleship, but it does not show all of discipleship. One of my own failures in discipleship is that for a long time, I only looked for Timothys. But we do need to look for Timothys. Timothys are fun. Timothys are encouraging. Timothys work hard. Timothys make us look good. So what is a Timothy disciple? Discipling a Timothy is improving on what's already there. Building new leaders. Giving opportunities to lead. What's happening in our story is Paul and Silas are on this missionary journey and arrive in the cities of Derby and Lystra. They hear about this young man, Timothy, who the Christians of several cities are talking up. So Timothy is already a Christian and already has a ministry that is doing well. Timothy is also multi-ethnic. His mother is Jewish and his father is Greek. Paul starts to think, this is a disciple we can really use. He's already a believer. He's already a leader. He has cross-cultural experience. He's even willing to be circumcised as an adult to better minister to Jews. Paul and Silas smartly add Timothy to their mission group. Now, Timothy is not just some cheap intern they can give busy work to. Paul plants churches and then frequently sends Timothy back for the follow-up ministry or to lead long-term. Timothy might return with letters from Paul to answer the church's questions. Timothy chooses elders for new churches. Eventually, Timothy even becomes the lead elder or pastor of the church of Ephesus. Even when Paul and Timothy are separated, Paul continues to write to Timothy to encourage him in his growth in the faith and as a leader. Paul invests in Timothy, and in Timothy's, because of this, Timothy's life and ministry flourishes, and the church flourishes. New disciples are made, churches are planted, and those churches grow. I found an article on Idea Rocket titled, How to Hire Your Next All-Star Intern. The article asked business leaders how they chose good interns, and these are their criteria. An intern with relevant experience. An intern that follows instructions. An intern with willingness to teach themselves new skills outside of work. An intern with enthusiasm. An intern with the aptitude and attitude to gain experience. An intern that can demonstrate their potential by pointing to prior relevant success with a plan to repeat those successes with my company. An intern looking to become a regular employee. An intern that is curious, can make decisions, and works hard. An intern that is proactive, or excuse me, a proactive communicator. 
an intern that wants to learn and do, not just get a paycheck or credits. An intern that is creative and can work on a team. An intern that takes notes. An intern that is dependable and by meaning that professional, shows up on time and meets deadlines. And an intern that has good references. It's a big list. You know, we need to make room at the table of leadership to develop future leaders. Give them the support they need to thrive and flourish. Paul cared for Timothy like a son, not like a boss. We're making Christians, which means little Christ, not many me's. Jesus said we need Timothy-type people. Luke 10:2, he told them, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. So we pray for these people, and we seek them out. We need to find and disciple Timothys. But if we only look for Timothys, our criteria really isn't different than the world that's looking for interns. If I look only for Timothys, I'm only looking for people who appear that they might give me a good return on investment. I'm only looking for people who are already Christians and not doing the work of an evangelist, which is one of the instructions that Paul gave to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 5. But as for you, exercise self-control in everything, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. You know, sometimes reliable, talented people are hard to find. There's a particular reason why Paul was so big on discipling Timothy. If we go back to the previous chapter, we see what happened with Paul's previous young disciple. Acts chapter 15, 36-39. After some time had passed, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's go back and visit the brothers and sisters in every town where we have preached the word of the Lord, and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take along John Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take along this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus. To make new disciples, I do look for people that flourish and... I look for people that failed. Not every person is going to hit a home run every time. Giving people a place of responsibility might mean they'll screw something up or leave something undone. John Mark had a really good resume. The Last Supper was probably at the household of Mark, his mother. The early church in Jerusalem met in his mother's house. Mark seems to also have been one of the disciples in Gethsemane. His uncle is Barnabas, who went with Paul on his first missionary journey. Acts 13.13 tells us what happened when John Mark joined Paul and Barnabas. Paul and his companions set sail from Pamphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and went back to Jerusalem. For some reason unknown to us, Mark quit and went back home. Now Paul and Barnabas are getting ready for another missionary journey. Barnabas says, let's bring Mark. And Paul says, no way. They are so divided over this that Paul and Barnabas split up. Paul takes Silas, while Barnabas takes Mark. 
Discipleship means giving people opportunities to fail and opportunities to try again. It also means spreading the load of discipleship around to others. Discipling in this way allows people to learn to become useful. Let's look at what the last letter Paul writes to Timothy says. Timothy, his good disciple. Paul believes that he's dying soon and he wants Timothy to come to him because everyone except Luke has abandoned Paul. He also asked Timothy to bring some important stuff, his warm cloak and some important scrolls and parchments. Paul is gathering the most important things and people around him at his death. And 2 Timothy 2.14 says, Bring Mark with you, for he is useful to me in ministry. Mark has failed in the past, but through discipleship with Barnabas, became useful. I found this fictional letter written to Jesus' carpenter shop from Jordan Management Consultants. It goes this, quote, Dear Sir, Thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests, and we have not only run the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. The priorities, are, excuse me, the profiles of all tests are, are included, and you will want to study each of them carefully. As part of our service, we make some general comments for your guidance. Much as an auditor will include some general statements. This is given as a result of staff consultation and comes without any additional fee. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not seem to have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally uns unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. You know, Jesus calls disciples that may not look like a good return on investment. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, Don't you know that the, the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, nor thieves, 
Greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And then verse 11, And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It is not that God doesn't care if I have talents or morals. It's that God can transform anyone to usefulness. Same Corinthians, excuse me, 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and see, the new has come. Also, not all disciples need a person like Paul to be their mentor. Barnabas' real name was Joseph, but he was such an encourager that people in the church began to call him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Someone who has failed might need a teacher, but they also may already know what they did wrong and instead need encouragement to try again. This is good news for me as a disciple and any potential disciple. God and I are looking for people who have already shown great potential and success and people who have failed. But I can't just look for Timothy's and Mark's because they both have something in common that will severely limit my finding of new disciples. Timothy and Mark were both already Christians. The reason why I disciple a Timothy or a Mark, those types of people that can flourish or have failed, is so that I can look for people that need faith. People that don't yet believe in Jesus are real new disciples. Discipleship doesn't begin with believers, it begins with unbelievers. After Mark goes with Barnabas and Paul picks up Timothy, they go to Philippi. Acts 16, 23-34. And from there to Philippi, a Roman colony and leading city of the district of Macedonia, we stayed on in that city for several days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. A God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. And after she and her household were baptized, she urged us, If you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. We're going to skip the middle part of the story where Paul casts an unclean spirit out of a slave girl. Then the slave owners, uh, girl, the slave girl's owners get mad because they've lost her fortune telling, fortune telling abilities. We'll pick up in verse 23 where Paul and Silas are being punished. Verse 23. After they had severely flogged them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew a sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul called out in a loud voice, Don't harm yourself, because we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. 
he escorted them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Right away, he and all his family were baptized. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. This is the story of two people in Philippi who come to faith in Jesus. They are both Gentiles. One person is a woman, the other a man. One fears God, the other fears people. They both need Jesus. As I said, discipleship doesn't begin with finding people who already know Jesus. Discipleship begins with bringing people to faith in Jesus and by me living as Jesus would among them. One regular practice Jesus had was going to synagogue. Paul in his missionary journeys also usually first goes to the local synagogue and then to the general population. On the Sabbath day in Philippi, Paul and his group go outside the city gate to the river where they expect to find a place of prayer. According to Jewish custom, a community must have at least 10 men to have a synagogue. If the community could not have a formal synagogue, the practice was to meet at a ritually pure place, such as a place with fresh running water. A place of prayer was a common phrase used by non-Palestinians to refer to a synagogue, whether they had a formal synagogue building or not. Another clue hinting at there not being a large Jewish population in Philippi is who Paul meets at Sabbath prayer. There's no men there, but Lydia, a merchant of purple cloth, seems to be a leading woman among these group of women that Paul finds at the place of prayer. And she's not even a Jew. She's a God-fearer, perhaps like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. She has converted to Judaism as a religion, but she was not born a Jew. As Paul speaks to the woman, notice how she comes to faith. Verse 14 says, Lydia was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond. To become a follower of Jesus, that takes both the human and supernatural volition. Both the person and God will the faith in Jesus. Lydia believes and she and her whole household are baptized. So it also seems she's the head of her household. And that's an important fact to remember for later. After being baptized, Lydia begins to use her gifts and resources to serve God. She offers hospitality to Paul and his companions and they go and stay at her house. It doesn't seem that Paul and Silas get to stay too long at Lydia's house because after casting a demon out of a girl, they get flogged and thrown into prison. The jailer is ordered to ensure they don't escape. So he places them in the deepest part of the prison and has them chained up. In prisons today, and often back then, a prisoner is not chained while they are incarcerated. Chains are for when a prisoner is being moved, because generally, unless the prisoner is Otis the Drunk, and the jail is in Mayberry, and the jailers are Andy Taylor and Barney Fife, jail itself is enough to keep a person in. So this jailer is being triple sure that Paul and Silas don't escape. He puts them in jail, into the deepest part of the jail, and in chains. 
this situation doesn't seem to bring down Paul and Silas. They now have a whole new group of people in the jail to tell about Jesus. They're down there praying and singing hymns when suddenly there's an earthquake. This is a divine intervention because even though an earthquake could possibly shake all the doors open, a regular earthquake is not going to vibrate shackles off people's legs. The jailer wakes up and sees the doors open and figures everyone has escaped and decides to kill himself. The punishment for negligence in letting prisoners escape is not the death penalty, but it would be shameful. I could think of two things that might be going through his mind. First, a very Roman way of thinking is that it's better to die with honor than to live with shame. Suicide was considered an honorable death. Second, maybe he's thinking if he killed himself, it would look like the prisoners killed him during the escape. Again, an honorable death. We don't know how many prisoners were in the jail. I mean, I suppose it could have been just Paul's group, but it seems likely from the text that there were other prisoners there as well that were listening to these prayers and hymns being sung. Either way, Paul stops the jailer from killing himself because Paul has somehow kept everyone inside the jail. The jailer is so moved by their sacrificial action of not escaping, he realizes that these people have a hope that he doesn't have. They're courageous when he is fearful. They are the prisoners, but do not fear what people may do to them. They sing songs in jail. He's the jailer, and he fears what people may do to him or think of him if he fails in his duty. So the jailer asks the prisoners, what must I do to be saved? And the answer is, believe in the Lord Jesus. If someone can be moved by moved to faith by the sacrifice of the Apostle Paul, how much more moving is the sacrifice of Jesus? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. If the Apostle Paul's sacrifice can point people to the sacrifice of Jesus, what should I be willing to do? The jailer not only believes in Jesus himself, but like Lydia, his whole household. Also like Lydia, his faith becomes practical. Paul and Silas are still legally under arrest, but there's no law that says they have to be kept in the jail. The jailer puts them under house arrest in his own home. In his house, his whole household can hear about Jesus, and they can all be baptized. There, the jailer can wash and bandage the wounds of his prisoners and feed them. Instead of Paul and Silas in a dark prison singing hymns, the whole house of the jailer rejoices because they have come to believe in God. Lydia is not out of the story yet. After all the legal matters are taken care of and Paul and company are released, Acts 16.40 says, After leaving the jail, they came to Lydia's house, where they saw and encouraged the brothers and sisters and departed. So in the time Paul is dealing with the people throwing him in jail, the new church has started to meet in Lydia's house. I think disciple-making in the church may sometimes look like our Red Cross blood drive statistics. In the last 12 months, we've held five blood drives. Initially, we had to do a lot of recruitment for the Red Cross to allow us to hold our first blood drive. I don't have the exact statistics because they're no longer on the Red Cross website. But at our first blood drive, 
I believe about one-third to one-half of our initial appointments were first-time donors. Now, by the time we held our fifth blood drive, only one or two people were first-time donors. This is not a failure for us. We actually want to see people more than one time. And most of the people who are coming are not people that come to our church or even necessarily claim to be Christians. I'm glad that people in our community have made our church the place where they want to do good by donating blood. However, for the Red Cross to sustain their efforts, they need new blood donors as well as repeat donors. For us as a church, if we want to reach more people, we need our repeat donors and new donors. Beyond blood drives, to be a living, growing body of Christ, a local church needs new disciples, not just transferred or repeat disciples. The pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church recently wrote about one COVID-19 church metric that I hadn't heard anyone else talking about. Churches had an expected decrease at in-person attendance. Many had an increase in online attendance. For some churches, serving opportunities were drastically curtailed, and many churches took a financial hit. But the most important metric that changed was baptisms. In 2019, hundreds of new disciples were baptized at Mecklenburg Community Church. In the year since the pandemic struck, they've baptized 60. Now, for many congregations, 60 baptisms would be something to celebrate, and Mecklenburg Church does celebrate those 60. But 60 is a lot less compared to hundreds. And I am not aware of a single church that has seen an increase in baptisms during the pandemic. Baptisms are an up-close and personal sacrament. They can't be done virtually. Baptisms are a public event. So even though one could be shown on YouTube, that's not the same as a new disciple having their family and friends right there, along with the possibility that one of those family members or friends might also come to faith by the witness of baptism. And baptism is how the New Testament and the church now measures new disciples. Baptism is the real metric we need to be concerned about. I think we have those same two Lydia and Jailer types of new disciples to find today. Lydia was a worshiper of God who didn't know Jesus. I run into those people all the time, and it's usually the older generations of people. This person maybe went through confirmation. At some point in their lives, more than just Easter, Christmas, wedding day, and funerals, they have spent time in church, but they don't go now. Even though they will still say, I'm a Christian, or I'm a Catholic, or a Lutheran, or a Baptist, or whatever. I often ask in reply, oh, you're Catholic? What's, who's your priest? I ask who's your priest or pastor instead of what church uh, do you belong to, because people will still claim a church they haven't been to in years. When I ask who's your pastor, that's an easy way for someone to admit, well, I haven't been in a while. Now, going to church does not make one a disciple of Jesus. But disciples of Jesus generally, regularly go to church. With people who have a familiarity with God, but do not show they are following God, that's a new disciple I'm looking for. I don't just want to introduce them to my church. I want to reintroduce them to Jesus. 
The jailer didn't know God at all. And I also run into those people all the time. These people are more likely to be in the younger generations. Like the jailer, their main concern is not the things of God, but what people around them, their friends, society, and culture say is important. Because when I don't value the same things as my society, society will shame me and try to hurt me. I think that's a sad way to live. Because society's values change constantly and not always for the better. How is a person supposed to find salvation in a culture of shame? And that's what cancel culture is, shaming culture. Instead of truth based in changeable feelings, Jesus offers eternal truth. Instead of shaming, Jesus offers forgiveness and the ability to walk in newness of life. Instead of canceling me, Jesus offers me a ministry of service to others. These are the new disciples we're looking for and the workers we are praying for. The same as the Apostle Paul and the same that Jesus calls. A disciple finds new disciples. Some disciples need the opportunity to flourish. Some need another chance after failure. And all disciples need to be new. In my early 20s, I went to church, did youth ministry, attended Bible college, and worked at a Christian bookstore. I was around Christians all the time. And now that may have been great for my own personal faith in Jesus. It was terrible for making new disciples. If I'm not making new disciples, I'm not a proper disciple of Jesus. Discipleship is the opposite of COVID-19. I'm supposed to be spreading Jesus around without wearing a mask. The first four living stones in our discipleship pathway are about how we live among and impact the lives of people around us. Those steps are faith, evangelism, personal responsibility, and community involvement. I encourage everyone to take a look at those and walk in your forward in your discipleship journey. Our psalm of the day is Psalm 133, which describes the anointing of Aaron, the first high priest. We'll begin with that as our prayer. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. It is like fine oil on the head, running down the beard, running down Aaron's beard onto his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has anointed the blessing, life forevermore. Lord, just as Aaron didn't serve you only for himself, nor only for the people of Israel, but that all Israel was to be a light to the world, so also we ask that our work of making disciples be good and pleasant to you, an eternal life-giving blessing that falls on everyone we meet. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll leave you with this blessing. May the Lord, who has never failed in any of his good promises, who does not leave or forsake his own, May he turn your hearts to him to walk in his ways and to keep his commands that he gave our fathers in the faith.